right, John 13, and take a little work here. John 13 through 17 is what is known as the upper room discourse, and that is where we are at, and uh, it's a time where Jesus focuses exclusively on his disciples, his public ministry is over, it's a very private time with his disciples, and it begins uh, where we were the first two weeks um, in these chapters with Christ washing the disciples' feet, and it's this vivid portrayal of his deep love for his own and it's a symbolic way of him showing what he's going to do for them at the cross he's going to wash them from his his cross work and we saw last week that it was also setting the model for how the church this new community of disciples is to behave itself governing itself after the way christ has first loved them so that was all verses 1 through 20 This morning, we're going to be in verses 21 through 30. Now, you need to realize as we come to these verses um, that um, we're still uh, 24 hours away from the cross, but the disciples are unaware that Jesus is going to be dead uh, in the next 24 hours, less than that. Much is going to transpire in the next few few hours. And Jesus knows that the disciples are about to go on this roller coaster ride of stunning events, of shocking events that's going to culminate in the death of their Messiah and in the scattering of, of disciples. And one of these stunning events that is going to take place is the betrayal of Judas, one of the closest disciples of Christ, who will betray Christ. Jesus knows all of this, and he knows that the faith of his disciples is small. He knows what's about to come for them. He knows they don't understand the necessity of his cross yet. He knows there's still much confusion about his teaching, but he's the shepherd, and he's coming to now protect and to guard and preserve his sheep in the upper room and prepare them for one of these stunning events that is coming which is the betrayal of, of Judas. And that, that's what our passage will focus on this morning. The exposure of Judas as Christ's betrayer. Jesus is going to make it clear that one of them, one of the twelve, will betray him. And then he's going to reveal that it's Judas, and he's going to send Judas out to carry out his evil plan. So I've entitled this, The Exposure of Judas, How Jesus Prepares His Disciples and achieves and advances his his cross. So look with me at verse 21, chapter 13. Let's read it. It says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain about whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, 
It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So that is um, our scene this morning. As we get going, I just want to ask, why does Jesus do all of this? Why does he expose Judas? Uh, why does he send Judas out to carry out his plans? Um, and I think there are a few reasons just to get us going here. I think we get this scene here in John and why Jesus does all of these things because Judas's presence has been adding confusion to Christ's teaching. So look back up to verse 10. He, he's doing this act of washing the disciples' feet. He has to clarify, not every one of you is clean. Look down to verse 18. He's given this example to the disciples in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. So he's, he's keep having to go back, clarify somebody in this room it doesn't apply to. And so long as Judas is in the room, Jesus must continue to give exceptions to his teaching. And that's certainly to add confusion rather than help to his disciples. So he wants to dismiss Judas as soon as possible from the room. Another thing that's going on here is Jesus is now setting into motion the events that are going to lead to his death. And Judas's betrayal is a significant part of that. He doesn't try to stop Judas here. He sends him out to go through with his plan. So in other words, Jesus is still the one in control. Jesus is advancing his plan. He is advancing his cross here. Every piece of it. Number three, why is Jesus doing what he's doing here? He's strengthening the faith of his disciples. We just said that the disciples still have weak and fragile faith. They don't know what's about to come. And he's preparing them. He's there to strengthen them. So that they will know none of this happened by accident. Christ was not a victim. He walked intentionally into it. He was in control of every step of, of the way. No one took his life from him. Look back up at verses 18 to 19. We skipped these verses briefly last week. <clears throat> Verse 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, he's not talking about choosing to salvation there. He's talking about choosing to apostleship, to disciples. He's talking about choosing the 12. I know whom I have chosen, the 12. And I know one of you is a traitor. That's what he says here. He knew from the very beginning of his ministry who Judas was. He knew from the very beginning what Judas would do, and that's why he chose him. Look back to chapter 6. The very end, chapter 6, verse 64. It says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, it's from the very beginning of his ministry, who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Drop your eye down to verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? There's the choosing, the 12, right? So it's the choosing of the 12 apostles, and yet one of you is a devil. 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In other words, Jesus chose Judas to be part of the twelve, knowing that Judas would do what he does in our passage. But why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus choose Judas knowing exactly what he would do? Well, he tells us back in chapter 13, verse 18, it was to fulfill scripture. He says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who lifted up his heel against me. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It was to fulfill scripture. This is a quote from Psalm 41.9. It's a lament of David in which one of his closest friends turns on him in unspeakable treachery. And Jesus is applying that psalm to himself as the greater David. Whatever happened to David most certainly will happen to the greater David, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah. So that's why Jesus chose Judas. So it must be so as he is the greater David. And he wants his disciples to be aware of this. Not only so that their faith won't be shaken, but so that it would be strengthened. Look at verse 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. In Greek, that word he is not there. It's just you'll know that I am. You'll believe that I am. He's telling the disciples this, so that after it happens, they will have heard and known Christ's foreknowledge, include he's the Messiah. But we also know those words I am mean a lot more in the Gospel of John, don't they? They highlight his deity. You'll know that I am who I am. Very God, a very God. That's why he is telling them ahead of time in this passage to strengthen their faith. And now that brings us to our passage, verses 21 through 22 is the first scene here. Jesus divulges that his betrayer is among the twelve. So he's just finished applying the teaching of the foot washing to the disciples, and we just said twice he makes mention of somebody that's going to betray him, somebody that is unclean among them. But now that he's finished speaking about the foot washing, he sort of zeroes in on this person. Who is this? And as he considers it, he experiences inner turmoil. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This idea is that he experiences this feeling of agitation, revulsion, or a deep disturbance of some kind. It's not the first time we've encountered this word. We saw it back in chapter 12 when Jesus approaches his hour and he says, Now my spirit is troubled. He was full of horror and distress because of the greatness of his hour. <clears throat> We saw Jesus troubled in front of the tomb of Lazarus, surrounded by all the effects of sin in this fallen world. He was disturbed deeply. And that's the word we get here. He's troubled by his knowledge of the heinous betrayal of one of his closest disciples, one of the twelve. I think most of us have experienced, to one level or another, this feeling of disturbance or agitation within. It's a feeling you get when you observe something or know something that's happened which is opposite of how things should happen. Things shouldn't be that way. Um, 
a child dying from cancer, a child being abused by their, their parents. So there's something that it disturbs you. It's like a punch in your gut. That's the feeling. It shouldn't be this way. It cuts deeply. And betrayal is one of those things that cut very deep. And the closer the relationship, the more painful the betrayal. And that's what Christ is feeling at this moment as he considers what Judas is about to do. What's so amazing is the very real human quality of Christ's emotions. He's not above these things. He felt deeply the pain of betrayal. And these are not sinful emotions. He's not filled with unbelief or bitterness or revenge. He's not experiencing self-pity, and yet he's still experiencing the deep pain of being betrayed. It's a pain that comes from real hurt, being turned on from someone he's loved so continuously. But what's even more amazing in that is that it's combined with his perfect knowledge and his perfect control of something that he could have stopped, but he doesn't. And his perfect love for his enemies all the way to the very end. So we see a very human side of Christ, but then we see a very divine side. He responds as all of us should respond, but do not. He loves Judas perfectly to the end, knowing his heart and being so grieved deeply from what Judas was about to do to him. Well, this inner turmoil of his soul was certainly visible outwardly, and so he goes on to tell the disciples what is going on. He gives them a startling announcement. It says he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So we've already seen a number of verses where Jesus has alluded to this betrayal a number of times, but now he makes it clear that this one will come from their midst. One from you, one from the twelve, will betray me. The disciples all through this time probably figured it was somebody on the fringes, one of the disciples, but certainly not among the twelve, and Jesus here makes it unmistakable, one from you will betray me. And with that, the announce, with that announcement, the room falls silent again. The disciples look around in perplexity. Look at verse 22. It says, The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So they're just floored. They're astonished that such a thing could be so. And they look around at each other in, in total shock. And certainly the thing that's circling their minds is, who is it? Which one of us is it? And this phrase here, the ESV says, they were uncertain of whom he spoke. The, uh, it's, it's better rendered. They, they were looking around at a loss for whom he spoke. In other words, they weren't only in shock that someone among the twelve would do it, but they were completely at a loss for who it would be. Nobody said, ah, I bet it's Judas. They're at a loss. Who could it be? Looking around, I, I have no even plausible guess at who it could be. They're at a loss. They were, as we said, perplexed, stunned. So before we move on, the point that I just want to emphasize here is how well Judas disguised himself among the disciples. No one suspected it was Judas. Yet he secretly cultivated this heart of greed and repeatedly refused to repent all 
belong. Remember what John said about him? Go to the beginning of chapter 12, verse 6. Judas rebukes Mary for pouring the ointment on Christ, and John gives this commentary in verse 6. He said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he had this unrepentant pattern of greed and love of money in his life until eventually he made it to this point of utter betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And this should remind us of our inability to see the hearts of others and the relative ease for false disciples to blend in with the true in, in the church. None of the disciples knew about this. They, none of them suspected it. And yet this is where the, the heart of a person will, will take them. The point we're making is that when defection does take place, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We don't know what's going in the hearts of, of others. We shouldn't, we shouldn't allow it to rattle and shake our, our faith. The heart of that person was unknown to us, and the defection that took place didn't come out of nowhere. Judas has cultivated this heart for a long time. He's hidden it. He's covered it up. And eventually it, it came out, and that is what will eventually happen among all the sheep. First John tells us they went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have continued with us. And that is what happens to Judas here. Their defection only proved their, their heart condition was there all along. So I think by way of implication, that should call us to be people of prayer. Pray for your church. Pray for your flock that God would guard us from wolves who easily come and blend in with the sheep. Pray that God would expose sin, that God would bring it to light that people would come to repentance before it's too late as with Judas here. Pray for your own hearts. Be on guard against coddling sin as Judas did which progressively led him even to this point here. And none of the disciples suspected it was him. They were perplexed. And that brings us now to verses 23 through 26 which Jesus discloses his betrayer's identity to the beloved <laughs> disciple. Look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So this is the first time we encounter this title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the title the author of this gospel gives to himself, and he uses it a number of times. Let me give you a few of these over in chapter 20 verse 2 um, it says so she it's Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved see it in chapter 21 verse 7 the disciple whom Jesus loved and then down in chapter 21 the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and he makes a connection back to our story here. The one who leaned back against him during the supper. This is a title John gave himself. When you bring all of the evidence together, it's pretty apparent it is the Apostle John who this title refers to. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. But why does he refer to himself in this way? 
it might sound sort of like a title of arrogance. I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. But it's actually just the opposite. It is a profound statement of humility. It is a statement of John's astonishment that he has been loved by the incarnate Son sent from the Father. Wonder of wonders is what John is saying. He's saying, largely my name is unimportant. The thing that's important is I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And that should be the way we identify ourselves mainly. What's important about me is Christ, the Son of God, has loved me. Is that how Paul said it? Galatians 2.20? Crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what? Loved me. That's what characterized Paul's life. That's what characterized John's life. And what should characterize our life. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than the Apostle John. So John now inquires on behalf of the bewildered disciples. Look first at John's position, verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus, literally in the bosom of Jesus. Now at banquets like this, especially formal ones like a Passover feast, you were required, because of the formality, to eat in a reclining position. You would recline on your left elbow and you would eat with your right hand. The tables would have been set in a U-shaped um, pattern with low legs. Here's a picture. This is actually from the museum in the Liberty Library. You can go there. It's a really neat setup of the Passover meal. The tables would have been very low to the ground, set in a U-shaped, and there would have been couches around the outside or mats going around uh, the tables from which people would recline as they, as they ate. The most honored would be the host. And he would have sat at the middle of the first couch going around. So at the very left table over there, he was the, the honored. He was the host. And those sitting on his right and left would obviously be very honored positions. And so what we see here is John reclining in the bosom of Christ would tell us that John is immediately to Christ's right. Would have been a very high honored position right next to Christ in the bosom of Christ reclining at this table. Now we're going to come back to that piece of information in a little bit and why it's significant, but I want to point out another little feature here. It says, in the bosom of Jesus. Now we've heard that expression earlier in John. If you were in our class on the Trinity on Sunday nights, you, you, you might know what I'm referring to. John 1.18 says that the Son, the only begotten from eternity, was in the bosom of the Father. The same expression. And so I think by saying this, John is giving us another way, another hint at the intimate relationship believers enjoy with the triune God. Just as Christ was eternally in the bosom of the Father, this relationship of intimacy and love and affection. So believers through Christ have been brought into the same fellowship and intimacy and love as the triune God. John is in the bosom of the Father. And I think he wants us to know our relationship as well. So let's go back to our, our story here. 
skip over these verses. Look at Peter's gesture now in verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So wherever Peter is seated, we're not told specifically, but it's somewhere that John can see him. Somewhere across from John, interestingly, Peter, the greatest of disciples as we think of him, is not right next to Jesus. The room is still silent. People still have not spoken. Peter doesn't even break the silence here, but he is the first to get the ball rolling to figure out who's Jesus talking about. And he signals to John. Perhaps he nods his head, waves his hand, motions to John to, to ask the question. That brings us to verse 25, John's question. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So John's already reclining close to Christ, and now he leans up even closer, places his, his head on Christ's chest, and whispers to him this question so that the others do not hear and Jesus will respond in the following verses by identifying specifically the betrayer. But this is important, I think, for another reason, which is eyewitness testimony. John is writing this gospel to testify to Christ, and he's giving you eyewitness testimony. John is telling you he heard directly from Christ the prediction of Judas show you a few verses. This is why he's writing this gospel. He wants to give you eyewitness testimony, and this is another example of it. He who saw it has borne witness. This is at the crucifixion. Why did he do that? So that you may believe. John 21, 20. The disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned back on him at the supper. Verse 24. This is the disciple bearing witness about these things and has written about these things. So that's why John is including this piece of information here. He's giving us eyewitness testimony. Another instance of this in the gospel for our faith. So now we come to verse 26 in which Jesus secretly identifies Judas to, to John. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He secretly identifies Judas to John. He gives him a, a sign that will identify the betrayer to, to John. And we know that nobody else at the table heard the words because in verses 29, 28 to 29, nobody knows what Christ is talking about when he sends Judas out. He's speaking quietly to John. But what is this sign that Jesus gives to, to John, this dipping of a morsel? Jesus dips this morsel into the dish and hands it to Judas. It was most likely a piece of bread, could have been a piece of meat. It would have been dipped into a common sauce dish on the table. That would have been made of an assortment of dates and raisins mashed up, mixed with vinegar or a sour wine. Um, and for the host to dip a morsel into a dish and share it with another at the table is a sign of great honor. We don't do this in our culture. Uh, we don't like people to touch our food. 
Um, but in most cultures, that's not a taboo. Even in China, um, it's an honorable thing for somebody older to use his chopsticks and get something out of the center dish and put it in your bowl. It's a sign of great closeness and friendship and honor. That's what Jesus does here to Judas. But more than that, from this we also learn about Judas's position at the table. For Jesus to hand it to Judas so easily would imply Judas is right next to him. And if John is to the right, that would mean Judas would be to the left. A little diagram for you so you can see how it's laid out. The left-hand side at a reclining banquet like this, right next to the host, was actually a position of greater honor than the right. So all of that to say, Jesus here has placed Judas in the seat of honor. And he has showed him great love and honor by handing him this morsel of bread. It's the incredible love of Jesus, all the while knowing the conniving heart of Judas. And all the while being pierced and cut in his heart by what Judas is about to do. It's the final gesture of love to Judas. And a final call to repentance to him. One final demonstration of the goodness of Christ. And it's what made the betrayal of Judas all the more heinous. Christ loved him to the very end. And Judas responded by lifting his heel against Christ. That brings us now to verses 27 to 30. Which Jesus dismisses his betrayer to carry out his satanic plot. So with the dipping and sharing of this morsel to Judas, Jesus not only exposes his identity to John, but he also now sets in motion the events of his passion. And as he hands the morsel to Judas, Satan possesses Judas. Look at verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. The chapter began by telling us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to carry out this plot. But now we're told that Satan, this is the only time John uses this title for the devil, Satan now enters and possesses Judas. Satan enters Judas to enable him and direct him as he carries out his purposes. In other words, the betrayal of Christ by Judas is nothing less than satanic. He was a willing agent of the devil. And I think John mentions Satan here to help us see that the events of the Passion Week is not just men carrying out their evil plans, although it is that. But there is a cosmic dimension going on in these events. Behind everything, Satan was at work to destroy Christ. Listen to how Luke, Jesus says it in Luke 22, 53. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at the very end, he says, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan has been seeking to destroy the promised seed from the beginning, and now that he is here... He's putting out all of his effort to destroy Christ. And he's working through Judas to do it. But as Satan seeks to destroy him, Christ is destroying Satan. Remember chapter 12? Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As Satan launches his final assault on Christ, Christ defeats Satan. As he conquers 
The only thing Satan has, which is accusations of unforgiven sin, and he atones on his death on the cross. And Jesus knows all of this. That's why he doesn't turn back from it. He doesn't stop it. He doesn't stop Judas. In fact, he sets it into motion. Look at verse 27, the rest of it. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus is in complete control of all that's about to take place, down to the very timing of it. And he commands Judas to do it speedily. And only Judas knows what Jesus means here. No one else knew what the sign meant to John. No one knows what Judas is going to do. They probably thought this betrayal Jesus was talking about sometime at the future. Don't know how it's going to happen. But Judas knows. So verses 28 to 29 give us, tell us that the disciples misinterpret the words of Jesus to Judas. Look at 28. It says, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So we're again told Judas is the treasurer, um, the very honored position again for him to have. At this point, they don't know Judas regularly helped himself to it. They don't know he's a thief. So they simply suppose Jesus wants him to go out and get what's needed for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is coming up that week, or to give alms, which is what you did at Passover. But ironically, he was going out to betray the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. And verse 30 concludes it by telling us that Judas departs into the night. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And it was certainly night in a literal sense, but I think John tells us this because it was night in a figurative sense. It was the hour of spiritual darkness. The hour in which the devil, or all of his minions, and the men working his will, is going to destroy, try to destroy Christ. As Judas enters the night, he also enters a spiritual night in which he would never escape. Judas will never see the light of day again. He enters eternal darkness from this point on. And it's night, and it's all in the control of Christ. It's all for the good of his disciples and in love. So let me give you a few points of application, um, and then I'll open it up to some, some questions here. Just to summarize everything we've said and, and apply it to you. Jesus has done all of this to strengthen the faith of his disciples and to provide us with eyewitness testimony so that your faith would be stronger Jesus knew all of this from the beginning, and he planned it down to the detail. Jesus has done all of this also to set into motion the events of his passion. He's in control of all of it. He doesn't go unknowingly. He's not a victim. He laid his life down for you willingly. And by point of application, I just want to call you to see the glories of Christ here. His astonishing love for his enemies. His ability to be cut in the heart so deeply by betrayal and yet not sin. None of us have or can do that. 
his willingness to die and be betrayed to fulfill God's plan and be your perfect Messiah. See the glory of Christ in this passage. Next, I want to call you, don't be surprised by defection. Of course false disciples will blend in with the true. It happened here, and it will happen again. We can't see hearts. False disciples can mix easily, so pray. Pray earnestly. Lord, protect you or protect us. And don't be surprised when they go out. The Lord's just exposing what was already there all along in the, in the heart. And number three, know the love of Christ for you. Know the title that John gave to himself as being your title. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how you should mainly identify yourself. And also know the love of Christ that you're in the bosom of Christ. Just as he is in the bosom of the Father. This intimate relationship of intimacy you have with him. So any questions or comments on on this passage as Jesus prepares for his cross and prepares his disciples. Yes. What do you mean, sir? I guess, I don't know, almost like a failure on the part of the disciples to discern Judas's character, or I mean, obviously it was within its timing, but I was just thinking more of like the idea of like a false teacher or just someone who's invaded. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a very position, higher position within the church. Would you consider that like? Yeah was a failure on the part of the apostles to not recognize that in Judas or I don't I don't think so because I don't ever see Jesus rebuking them okay. um, <clears throat> I think he was a good cover up he was able to disguise it he knew it well I think Jesus discerned it very easily he can read hearts he knows hearts he's God but also the purity of his character um, he was able to see through Judas but no I don't think the disciples are being rebuked here Was, do you know if there was a reason uh, why it seemed like Jesus, um, when John asked him, who is this, and it was like kind of like a private conversation, he, he didn't, none of the other disciples still knew when he handed them the morsel that John, or that Jesus was identifying to John, identifying Judas to John? Was there a reason he was, Jesus, do you know if he was kind of keeping it secret from the rest of the disciples, or I was just wondering mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so, so why does he not just say it out loud yeah right um we're not told Mm -hmm. i think because of the tenseness of the situation i think because jesus doesn't want judas to be stopped right he doesn't want others to get involved in it um and i think he also wants judas to go out right i don't think he's just trying to control the situation and uh, expose judas give that eyewitness testimony to john and then get judas on with the mission and uh, get the ball rolling that's a good question Michael and Judas, so obviously John records that Judas helped himself to the money box back in another chapter. Um, does that mean that John was aware of Judas's character even before his betrayal? Um, was he one of those disciples that was, I guess, um, skeptical of, of Judas throughout the ministry? Or My guess would be no, given what it said here. They were perplexed. They were at a loss. Right. None of that's them. Including John. None of them guessed, okay. yeah. That's why even John leaved in his head and asked, you know, who is it? Um, So I think a lot of these things came out post-resurrection, after Mm -hmm. Christ came back, conversations. After Jews defected, they're finding out a lot of things that were already there. I believe so. Yep. Good question. You have something? I was just going to say what a tremendous reminder of grace 
Hmm. Not only, and it'll only be a few verses and we get to Jesus telling Peter that he is going to deny him. Yeah. And so you have Judas on one, Peter on the other. Both of them deny Christ, and yet Christ's grace to us when we would do the same and struggle with the same, the, the, the love of Christ. It's the, even in those passages for Judas, it screams Christ's love for us. And I think one of the reasons he makes the clarification about Judas, he was chosen, and yet he would fall away, is so that we would know that this is not an exception to Christ's choosing. Those who Christ chooses, some of them might fall away. It's not what he's saying. He chose Judas intentionally for this purpose as the twelve. But the sheep that he chooses, he keeps. He preserves to the end. He doesn't lose one of them. That was chapter 6. It's the main point. John even seems, oh, sorry. The Matthew account tells us that the disciples turned to Jesus and said, Is it I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody trusted their own heart. And Solomon says in Proverbs, He that trusts his own heart is a fool. Mm-hmm. We don't know the depths of our own heart, and we wonder always, Could I be the one that would do that? Amen. Amen. It's, it's a good word. Is that you? Have a yeah, I was just going to say, Jed brought up, I think, is do you think John is drawing out a contrast between his preservation of Peter? Because he even zones in on that later in, into his gospel. The fact that he did, Peter did deny Christ, but he restores him. And then you have Judas who, who went into internal damnation. So you see how Christ has even preserved Peter. Do you think he's even drawing out a contrast there between the portrayal of, of Judas and Peter's denial and just those are different in nature. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll uh, we'll get to that when we hit the facet. So I haven't studied it out yet. I think it is. No, yeah, so, yeah. It's just interesting. I think you're picking up on something. It's good. All right, guys. Let me let you go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, His great love for us, sovereign in control of all of it, so that He could love us as our perfect Savior and Messiah. We love you. Praise you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.